Praise God. We often hear that in our churches, but how are we to understand just what that entails? When we receive praise for our work, we're extremely appreciative, but we are dismayed when we're given flattery or unwarranted, exaggerated praise. Does God require our praise? Do we magnify God to receive some fringe benefit or simply because he deserves it? Do we recognize some tiny fragment of God's worth or are we just trying to earn points with him? How are we to regard God? Should we continue to keep God privately to ourselves like a miser? Or should we instead be motivated to distribute God's love, mercy, and to warn of impending judgment for those who are lost? Ought we to express our devotion to God by following His commands, including the one to preach the gospel to the unsaved who are created in God's image? Hello, and welcome to God's Word for You for today from Liberty Lake Church. Today we have another special message by our brother in Christ, Alan Ulmer. We'll be looking at several passages today, so take out your Bible and turn to Psalm chapter 117, verse 1, and follow along with Alan as he expands the ideas of what, how, and why in this uplifting scripture in the message titled, Praise the Lord. If you were going to uh, impress your friends and memorize a chapter of the Bible, this is the chapter to start with. <laughs> you probably figured that out already. Uh, two verses, 28 words in English. Uh, there's only 16 words in Hebrew, so if you know Hebrew, it's even easier. Uh, interesting thing true story about this text. Um, the first time I preached on it, uh, the pastor that I was filling in for was actually able to be there. Oftentimes the pastors are absent for whatever reason. But as I met him at the church that Sunday morning, he shook my hand, greeted me, and then he said, did you know there's only two verses in this chapter? <laughs> as if I hadn't studied it in preparation for the sermon. And I, I kind of had this blank stare for a minute. And I was trying to think of a creative thing to say, like, really? <laughs> or, oh, I had the wrong chapter or something. But I just said, yeah, I, I realized that. Um, <clears throat> interesting thing, though, as we'll see, there's a lot here. Um, the Word of God is extremely powerful and extremely rich, and we will recognize that this morning. So as we look into that, uh, let us pray first. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the availability that we have of your word in so many formats, so many ways. Um, and we ask that as we look into your word this morning, that you would bless us, that you would, by your spirit, apply these truths uh, to us, to our individual circumstances, to our situation here as your church at Liberty Lake, um, the places that we each have in the world in which you have placed us. 
We ask that you would uh, speak to us and give us a message to take and to speak to others as well. So we commit our time to you this morning and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read together Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Uh, Psalm 117 falls into a group of psalms, uh, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, that are referred to as Hallel Psalms or Praise Psalms. Uh, this particular group of psalms was uh, regularly incorporated into the celebration of Passover, which is in the Lord's providence that we were celebrating what has taken over Passover is the Lord's Supper. It's likely that Jesus and his disciples sang this psalm on the night of the Last Supper. Uh, as you know, in Scripture, they sang some hymns or songs together as part of their celebration, and this was likely a part of that. I didn't think about us having the Lord's Supper today. God planned that, that it happened to be, this is the text, and this is what that psalm signifies. Uh, we're all familiar with praise. Uh, being the focus of praise feels good. We like to know that what we've done, somebody appreciates, and they tell us that, and it's, it makes us feel good. Giving praise makes others feel appreciated, accepted, and loved. And oftentimes we give praise for a variety of motivations. Sometimes we're inclined to use praise as a way to drop somebody's name or to be excited about somebody or something. Uh, we often talk about different people that we really look up to or the things they've accomplished, uh, sports heroes or uh, political personalities or other people and things, and we'll incorporate praise in that process. But what is our motivation for praising the Lord? Do we praise the Lord the same way we praise other people? Do we have the same feelings and thoughts and intentions when we give praise? Praise the Lord in this psalm is the word that we're familiar with, hallelujah, in Hebrew. It means, let us praise Yah, which is the shortened version of Yahweh, one of the names for God. Um, it's used numerous times in the scriptures, and in this text, it's used to introduce what the psalmist wants to say, and then it's used as an encapsulation to say, because of that, Praise the Lord. The significance of the Lord in this particular case is that name, the name Yahweh, in which God describes himself. And this was first introduced 
to Moses at the burning bush. You're probably familiar with that situation. Moses had been in Egypt and thought that he could take some matters into his own hands to deliver his people from the suffering and the bondage and the work that they were being enslaved to do. And he killed an Egyptian and thought he was doing a good thing. And then it came about that it was evident that people knew about this. And so he ran away from Egypt, ended up in Midian, became a shepherd and was out tending his sheep. And one day he sees this bush that's on fire. That was not an unusual phenomenon. We, we look at it as like, wow, this is really a, it wasn't uncommon that bushes would ignite because of the extreme heat. They would get so cooked and dried out that they would ignite. But obviously when that happened, the bush would burn up. In Moses' case, he's seeing a bush on fire, but it's not burning up. The bush is still intact, but there's fire. And he's like, whoa, I better go check this out. (laughs) So he goes over and he's looking at the bush and then God uses this opportunity because he has his attention to speak to him and say, I have a job for you. And you're not going to do it the way you tried to do it before. You're going to do it my way. And so Moses, you know, listens to this. And then he says, well, what if I go back to Egypt, go back to the people of Israel that are enslaved and tell them all this? Who should I tell them sent me? Well, God gives him the name in Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Well, we don't often contemplate what that name is about. We see I am or I am who I am. The significance of that is that God is self-existent. God is not needing anything to sustain his existence. And self-existent is not self-caused. Philosophically, that's ridiculous. For something to cause itself, it would have to be before it became. God has always been. God exists within himself. God didn't need anything. But God in his wisdom, and God is in his desire for pleasure and joy and accomplishing his purpose, as we talked about in the last couple of weeks, created and provided people and provided a beautiful creation for his people and provided all the things for life and for us to exist But he also knew that there would be sin, and he provided for all of that. It wasn't necessary that he do that. But in the process of creation, 
God imparted existence to us. The, the name I am is based on the Hebrew verb to be. And literally what it is, is God exists. God is a being. We call him the supreme being. And God in creating us has imparted to us being, but we are human beings. We're not supreme beings, even though we try to act that way sometimes. We require things outside of us for our existence. It's necessary for the perfect environment for us to exist in. It's necessary for there to be air and water and food and clothes and shelter and all those necessary things to sustain our lives. And God has given that to us in his sovereignty. Um, the other name that shows up in this text and it shows up in Exodus chapter 3 is the name the Lord. And being the Lord, he's in control of everything. He owns everything. Everything belongs to him. And he is willing to share with us. But he also calls us to be sharing people with things that he gives to us. When we talk about praising the Lord, praise is an element of worship. It's not all there is to worship, but it's an element of worship. And worship at its heart, the essence of that concept of worship is to ascribe worth to something or someone. And when we talk about God's worth or him being worthy, we see that enumerated many times in Scripture. We've sung about it this morning. Lord, you are worthy of our praise. Well, what is it about God that makes him worthy? And we want to take a look at that for some time this morning. The other thing that's interesting about worship is we tend to kind of compartmentalize how we worship and where we worship, and yet God calls us to worship Him always in all things, whatever we're doing, to acknowledge who He is, that He is worthy of our thoughts, worthy of our honor, worthy of our praise. In this psalm, we are called as part of the nations, to worship God. The psalmist writes about praise the Lord all nations. Uh, Israel was given the message from God through Moses in that particular text in Exodus and it was reiterated numerous times through various prophets and in various circumstances and eventually in the kings and the other provisions that God made. Israel was called to be distinct from the rest of the nations. But God never called Israel to be isolated from the other nations. And yet the uh, worship that developed within the Jewish community, Israel community, 
became isolated and they separated themselves so much that they wouldn't have anything to do with others outside of their nationality. And so in the context of the Old Testament, it would have been nearly impossible for someone that was not Jewish to worship God in the same way that the Jewish people did. It wasn't entirely impossible, but it didn't happen on a regular basis. The, uh, the foreshadowing in this psalm is anticipating Messiah, that when Messiah would come, salvation would come to all nations. And it's also a fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham in uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that in you, Abraham, once I develop you into this great nation, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's again a fulfillment of God's covenant that is fulfilled in Christ. And we get to participate in that. Isaiah 49 verses 5 and 6 talk about this job that he has provided for Jesus, for the Messiah. He says, and now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It was always God's plan that the salvation would be introduced to Israel and that they would be the light to the nations, and yet they kept it more and more contained the longer that they existed. Uh, and it became nearly impossible, again, for people outside of the Jewish nation to worship God in the way that God had called people to worship him. Uh, this text is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 15, verse 11, uh, talking about the fact that God had always had this intention that Jews and Gentiles would come together and worship him the way he deserved, the way he was worthy to be worshipped. This word nations is the word ethnos in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's all ethnic groups, including Israel. And that's why the job was delineated in Isaiah 49 for Jesus. It's not enough that you simply bring the Jews. That's, that's too little. I want everybody. I want people from all nations. I want people from all over the world. And so that was God's plan. And that's what God implemented. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, when he introduces the nature of the gospel. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. 
for the Jew first and also for the Greek or the Gentile, those that are outside of the Jewish context. The other thing that we're enjoined to participate in here by the psalmist is to extol. And extol is another kind of praise. We don't use that word very often anymore. But it has to do with bragging. We brag about something. Uh, Unfortunately, often our bragging has to do with ourselves. And we brag about us and our accomplishments. But what the psalmist wants us to do is literally brag about God. Well, in order to brag about God, we have to know God. And we have to know about him. And we have to know what he is doing and has done and what he will do. And he, he tells us some of those things here. But again, we're acknowledging God's worth. And in that way, it's a really good and positive way to name drop, to, to use God's name to say, hey, this is what he is and who he is. And, and we, we do that here. Part of the worship we've already participated in this morning is people talking about where do we see God working? Where do we see his action? What has he done? What is he doing? What are we praying for him to do? And that's part of what extol has to do. Literally, the idea of extol is to address in a loud tone or to magnify. Um, We get real excited about when our favorite team is winning or if they get a bad call and we think that that, you know, ref should have done a different and we'll get all excited and extol. But we're supposed to do that to God also. And fortunately, we have opportunities in life to do that. Uh, again, the whole concept of extolling him as the Lord. Um, Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 15. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. You think about the Lord taking mountains and measuring them on a scale, and the dust on that scale are the nations and the people and other places in the New Testament and Old Testament. God talks about the insignificance of people compared to his significance. In some cases, we're accounted as grasshoppers. (laughs) Not too terribly significant, relatively speaking. But as the Lord, again, he owns everything, he controls everything, he sees everything, he knows everything. And even in that light, as we sang about earlier, he loves us and has called us to love him and to praise him and to bring him the glory that he's worthy of. And the psalmist enjoins all peoples. 
Uh, not just some peoples, not just exclusive peoples, but all peoples. Isaiah 45, verses 22 through 25. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. And as we know in the New Testament, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul takes up this concept of the offspring of Israel and he makes it clear that the offspring of Israel are not necessarily those who are in the descended line. They are the people who have faith, the people who believe. Uh, the interesting name is of God that is introduced to Moses, he talks about him being the, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Well, we know what God did with Abraham. Abraham was a nobody in a big place amongst a bunch of people. And God called him from that place, which was, as we know historically, a place of idolatry. And he called Abraham and said, leave this place and go to the place I will show you. And so Abraham made his way to do that. We know that God promised Abraham numerous times that he would be a great nation. And yet throughout the promising process, Abraham didn't even have one child, much less many. <clears throat> and he kept contesting with God saying, how can I be a great nation? I don't even have a son. And I have a inheritor that isn't even part of my family, that he's going to get everything when I die. And so then Abraham, as you know, took matters in his own hands and said, oh, I'll, I'll get a son uh, with my wife's maid. And then that created a whole other issue of a son who gets blessed and becomes a great nation of which we know about today that we're still doing battle with. Uh, the Ishmaelites became numerous and great and powerful and still are, and they are diametrically opposed to the things of God and the things particularly having to do with those who are of the child of promise, Isaac. God said, through Isaac shall your, you know, your blessing, the blessing to all the families of the earth come. The child of promise not the child that you had the other way. And so we have Isaac who did that. We have God who calls Jacob. Jacob is the deceiver, the supplanter, the devious one. He's the younger brother. He should have been the one through whom the blessing came. But God said, no, the older will serve the younger. Because Jacob I loved and Esau I've hated. And so God chose Jacob over Esau and in that process brought about, as we know, the 12 tribes of Israel, the whole process of the people uh, growing and ending up in Egypt and developing into this great nation that God delivered miraculously 
by his own hand. He's the Lord. He can do that. And he called them to bring the message to all peoples in the process of going forth. And yet they kept themselves exclusive, so exclusive they didn't want to include others. So all peoples are called to worship this Lord and to bring what becomes the result of the gospel in the Messiah. Peoples here refers to all people in general, not distinctive people, but it has the uh, essence of the idea of groups of people. Um, Families are a group of people. Communities are a group of people. It foreshadows us here as a church, a community of people that God has called to worship him, to bring him glory, to extol him, celebrate him, Worship him because he is worthy. It's interesting that of the eight or nine authors of the New Testament, Paul is the only one that quotes this psalm, and he uses this psalm in uh, uh, enforcement, reinforcement of his argument that the gospel is for all peoples. It isn't exclusively for Jews. And he points that out all throughout the book of Romans to make it clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All need the Savior that God provides, Jews and Gentiles both. So in our quest to fulfill what the psalmist calls us to do here, why why should we praise? Well, we've talked about God as being worthy. We've talked about bragging about him, but he gives us a couple of particular reasons in here. Um, Initially, just in the Psalms themselves, Psalm 147 verse 1, we're enjoined to praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. So we have Three things there in Psalm 147.1. It's good, it's pleasant, and it's fitting or appropriate. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 13, we are called as God's people to use the fruit of our lips, the words that come out of our mouths, to be a praise to God. And that's part of what it is to belong to God is that we are a praising people. We praise him. We acknowledge him. We lift him up. We extol him and brag about him. But the psalmist here uh, in Psalm 117 tells us that one of the reasons particularly to praise him is for his steadfast love. And a good cross-reference for that, Exodus uh, chapter 34, verses 6 and 7 tells us Uh, Again, Moses and the Lord are together in this text. Moses has appealed to God to say, show me your glory. Let me see you. And God said, well, you can't look on me fully and live. So I will pass by. I will protect you in this rock as I go by. But I'm going to come by and show you my glory. And as God does that, he proclaims his name. 
The Lord passed before him, that is before Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. <clears throat> but will who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So part of the God revealing his glory to Moses is declaring the kind of God that he is. He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and being willing to forgive. And all of those things that God declares about himself are things that make him worthy of our worship. Literally in the Hebrew, what he's talking about in this steadfast love, it states, mighty is his mercy over us. When we think about that concept, mighty is his mercy, what is he referring to and, and who is us? Who is it that he's exactly describing here? Well, us are people that respond to his appeal, respond to him when he calls us to worship him, respond to him when we recognize that he's merciful. We mentioned it a few weeks ago, but mercy is the fact that God does not give us what we deserve. And in the particular case of our relationship to God, God has given to Christ on the cross everything that each of us individually deserved. And Christ was able to take that and to take the full brunt of the punishment and be resurrected again after three days. If we took the punishment that we deserve, it would take us forever and we would never be able to return to life as we know it. God has done a miraculous, amazing thing in being merciful to us. His mercy is not a light thing. Uh, Dr. Paul David Tripp, in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, it's uh, subtitled, People in Need of Change, Helping People in Need of Change. That's what we do in the church. None of us have arrived all the way. We're all in the process of changing, hopefully for the better. And our goal in community here is to serve one another, helping us all to change for the better. But he describes this whole scenario of our need for steadfast love or God's mighty mercy. He says, sin leads us to believe that life can be found away from the creator. And so we, in subtle and obvious ways, forget the creator and deify the creation. Our behavior is ruled not by worship and service of the Lord, but by a ravenous desire for something in the creation. As John Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories 
and our words and actions are shaped by our pursuit of the things our hearts crave. To make matters worse, this idolatry is hidden. It is deceptive. It exists underground. We can make this great exchange without forsaking our confessional theology or even our observance of the external duties of the faith. So we hold on to our beliefs, tithe, remain faithful in church attendance, and occasionally participate in ministry activity. Yet at the level of what we are really living for, we have forsaken God for something else. This is the silent cancer that weakens the church, robs individuals of their spiritual vitality, and leads to all kinds of difficulty in relationships and situations. At its core, sin is moral thievery. It steals the worship that rightly belongs to God and gives it to someone or something else. It robs the Trinity to purchase the creation. Every sinner is in some way a worship thief. At its center, sin is also spiritual adultery. It takes the love that belongs to God alone and gives it to someone or something else. It is a life shaped by the satisfaction of cravings rather than by heartfelt commitment and faithfulness. Every sinner is in some way a spiritual adulterer. The deepest issues of life are issues of worship. Worship is more fundamental to our essential nature than the pain, pressures, or pleasures of our experiences. What we worship determines our responses to all our experiences. Sin is much more than doing the wrong thing. It begins with loving, worshiping, and serving the wrong thing. Sin, in some way, always involves the great exchange. When we recognize God's mercy, His steadfast love, and His willingness to forgive our sin, not only our sin nature, but also our sins individually, he deserves our praise. The psalmist also reminds us of his faithfulness. The faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. How long is forever? How faithful is that God of ours that would endure us willingly, providing for us willingly for forever? Because those of us who are in Christ, that's what we get to look forward to. It isn't just now. It's for forever. Because once we're connected to God in Christ, there's no disconnect. There's no separation. We're there. We're His. Literally, the Hebrew says His truth is forever. And that's what God is faithful to, is the truth 
the true reality of who we are and who he is. And it's unceasing, it's endless. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So how does God show his steadfast love, his mercy, and his enduring faithfulness? Well, we've mentioned it, we've sung about it, we've celebrated it. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. How far will this demonstration of God's character take us toward worship? How far will it take us in our lives in living for His glory. We really ought to practice this because once we leave this life, that's what the essence of eternity will be, is our worship of God forever. If we're in good practice here, it's going to be a natural fit for us to move into that worship. One final text I want to share with you uh, just to solidify what we're thinking about here. It's in Luke chapter 24. Um, Jesus, just before his ascension, is with his disciples and he's talking with them and just reiterating uh, all that he's been about and all that they can anticipate him to be about uh, in their particular situations. Luke chapter 24 Verse 44, and then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And then he said, uh, I'm sending you the promise of my Father, the Holy Spirit, and he's going to give you the power to carry out this witness from Jerusalem, and as we know, another text to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we are called to be a part of that process, to take this marvelous truth of the repentance and forgiveness of sins that we proclaim in Jesus' name to everywhere we go, because all people, all nations still need to hear. Let us pray. Our Father, we do praise you and thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing of what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ and what you have called us to live a life of responding to that marvelous activity on our behalf. We thank you for your great steadfast love. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for all that you have done, all that you are doing even at this very moment and all that will yet take place because of your great and precious promises. 
And we thank you and praise you for providing this time for us to contemplate these things this morning. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise of Psalm 117 is praise the Lord. And Revelation chapter 1, again, we're given some reasons that we can take with us to praise him and to bring his truth to all that we encounter. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Yes. Do our friends, our family, our co-workers, our neighbors, do they know this truth that Jesus is coming back? We don't know exactly when, but we do know it's a sure thing. And we have the opportunity to call them, to tell them, to invite them to participate in that with us. Let's go forth and do that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's message from Liberty Lake Church in Liberty Lake, Washington. Our pastor, our elders, and our prayer watch team are available to pray with you or to answer any questions you may have. Contact us through www.LibertyLakeChurch.com or follow us on Facebook. We look forward to hearing from you and welcome any comments you may have. As always, we appreciate your prayer support. Join us next week on God's Word for You for Today for another message from Liberty Lake Church. Thank you again, and God bless.